Somebody asked me during the, the greeting time, um, I mentioned the fee with the online giving. Um, you're not charged a fee. So um, if you give $100 and you do it through credit card, um, you're not then charged three extra dollars for credit card. Um, we just received 97 of it. So if you have more questions about that, but somebody asked me, they said I wasn't charged a fee. Um, so uh, if you have more questions, you can see me afterwards. Um, so we're in a series. We began in January, in the first week of January, and we're going to go to a little past Easter, 16 weeks, and we're looking at the whole gospel story. We're looking at how do we begin in a garden and end in Revelation in a city that fills the entire earth. So that's, that's the series that we're in. How does the whole entire gospel story fit together from Genesis to Revelation? So, so far what we've seen is that there is a God who is a cosmic sovereign king who has so much power that he speaks everything into existence. And uh, we see that he creates man in his image. Being that man is in, is in his image means that he's going to worship God, and he does so by obeying God. When we come to Revelation or Genesis 3, we see that man chooses not to listen to God, not to obey God, and thus he sins because now he desires to worship himself or some other part of creation. And last week we saw that there was a judgment. Man is removed from the garden because of this. Uh, we did see that there's two um, aspects of hope that are kind of hidden in Genesis 3. One is that God makes a sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve, to cover their shame and guilt. And we said that how that pointed forward to a greater sacrifice that one day will be made in Jesus. But we also said that there's an, another, um, another uh, hint of hope, and that's in Genesis 3.15. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Genesis 3.15. Also, if you have a moment... Put your finger in Romans 5. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in Romans 5 today. Uh, so kind of go ahead and have your finger in both those. And as you're doing that, um, you ever see the movie Sixth Sense? Bruce Willis? Now the reason 2016 seems kind of crazy is because that movie came out in 1999. And I remember like watching that when it came out. So uh, that just feels really strange. So if you've not seen the movie, I'm totally going to spoil it for you. Um, it's been out for 17 years. Like, too bad. Um, so basically, Bruce Willis, he's a child psychologist, um, and he's very, very good. And a man named Vincent Gray breaks into his house and, and shoots him. And uh, next scene goes towards Bruce Willis is now um, in a relationship with this child. He's going to be counseling this child. And of course, the famous line from the movie is, do you remember? You see dead people. 17, 16 years ago, and you guys remember that. That's awesome. Uh, so yes, no, that's the whole part of the movie. Um, and so he sees dead people, and so Bruce Willis is going to help this kid um, and, and walk him through this. But at the end of the movie, what do we find out? Bruce Willis is, in fact, dead. It, totally. Like, you don't really know that um, going through the entire movie. But when you know that, it changes everything. When you look at the movie now, you notice he doesn't talk to anyone but the kid throughout the entire movie. Totally changes the way you see the movie. That truth, which comes at the end, changes everything. And what we're going to see is that Genesis 3 is kind of like one of those truths that really affects the way we see the story. And it's easy to read over Genesis 3.15 and just kind of make your way through the whole sin and judgment on into chapter 4. Um, but Genesis 3.15 is is very important, and so we're going to spend time unpacking that today. So one thing that we do is we stand when we read God's Word, so I want to encourage you to stand. Um, 
I don't think it'll be much of an endurance test today. We're only in verse 15. We read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let me, let me pray as we start today. Our Father, give us wisdom, give us knowledge, pour out your grace upon us as we study your word. God, help us to understand this battle that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God, help us to understand this. Help us to see where we are in this battle. God, help us to see the hope that is in Jesus. God, fill us with strength and with boldness today because of your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So let me, um, let me just define two words as we start. Enmity, intense hostility. So it's a word that would be used between two warring nations. They're at enmity with one another. They hate one another. They're at war with one another. And the word bruise means to crush. So it's important to realize enmity, intense hostility, the word bruise is to crush. So few comments where we are. So one, if you're familiar, these are words that now God is, is speaking to the serpent. The serpent has come in, has given lies to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not sin because of the serpent. We, talked, we tackled that last week. They sinned because they chose to. Um, the serpent did play a part in that. So the serpent is deceit, or the serpent is now being judged also, as will the woman be, the man, and all of creation is judged. What we see is that there's a war between the woman and the serpent. But this war goes far beyond them because then we read it's between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. And that last half of verse 15 tells us the outcome. We see both seeds, um, the, wo the woman and the seed of the serpent, they're going to be crushed. The key part is location. The serpent, or, or the, the woman, the seed of the woman, will have his heel crushed, which, unless if you're Achilles, is not necessarily detrimental, but it does hurt. Um, but the serpent will have his, his head crushed, which surely means it is a fatal blow is a deadly blow, is one that is absolutely going to destroy the serpent. So what we see is that there's a war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, but it's not the offspring of the serpent who are necessarily crushed. It's the, off it's the serpent who is crushed. So we see that the offspring of the serpent and the serpent are both at war with the seed of the woman, and we will see at the end of the story that when... The serpent is crushed, so also is the offspring of the serpent. So we'll see that, not as much today, but that's something that we'll see as we make our way through the story. So we're just going to unpack this today, try to understand it and, and how it applies today. So number one, question one, who is the offspring of Satan? That's kind of a good question, kind of bears asking. We're not going to beat around the bush, we're just going to be straightforward with it. All of humanity has become the offspring of Satan. All of humanity. Um, Adam represents all of humanity. And because of his sin, all of humanity has become sinful. Okay? Adam represents, therefore what Adam does will be carried out through his line. And we see this in Romans. So hopefully you have your finger in Romans. Switch over. Romans 5. And we're going to look at how this applies to Adam and his offspring, and then we'll look at how it applies to Jesus, who really comes as 
the last Adam, as another representative of humanity. So Romans 5.12, we're going to look at verse 12, verse 18, and verse 19. We're going to go through these a little quickly. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so through Adam, and so death, death spread to all men because all sinned. You see it? Adam sinned, death comes in, everyone sins, and everyone dies. Romans 18, 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. The trespass of Adam has led to condemnation of all men. Verse 19. For as by the one man's, this is Adam, disobedience, the many were made sinners. Again, Adam represents all of humanity. When he sins, all of humanity becomes sinful. This is what we then see in Genesis 4, why Cain kills Abel. Because he's sinful. This is why we see later on in Genesis 4 a man named Lemek who says, I'm characterized by revenge. You can read that on in the latter part of chapter 4. This is why when we come to Genesis 5 and we have a genealogy, what comes at the end of every single person's name? And they died. And they died. And they died. Why did they die? Because they're all from the line of Adam and death now reigns because of sin. And so everyone dies. Genesis 6 also now is, comes from um, because we have sin, and what we read is that all of mankind is sinful, and if you remember last week, we kind of put on, uh, I think it's 6, 5, I don't remember exactly, but it says, all of men sin continually. I mean, it's just this redundant phrase about the wickedness of sin, and that all they do, every intention of their heart is only sin continuously. And he couldn't be more clear that the fact that because of the sin of Adam, all of humanity is sinful. So hear this. You and I are sinners not because we sin, but because we're born sinful. That's a big key. We're not sinners because we sin. We're sinners because we're born sinful. We, we're not born righteous, and then at a moment in our life, we sin and then become sinful. We are born sinful, and that's why we sin. Now, you might say, okay, I see that I'm sinful, um, but how can you say I'm the offspring of Satan? That just doesn't sound good, does it? I mean, it really doesn't sound good. I've, I've seen my family tree. There's no little person with red horns or red guy with red horns, anything like that. Like, we don't have that. Um, think about Romans 3. Flip over to Romans 3, verse 10. This is what it says. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Now you can read on, and basically what you'll read is wickedness of humanity here. Paul seems to be saying that because of sin, all of humanity shares the same desires of Satan, the same characteristics of Satan. Just as Satan does not seek God, and does not seek the glory of God, now we do not seek God or his glory. So many of you know, Benjamin is my son. He was in here a little bit ago, um, and he's now downstairs. And so Benjamin and I, if you look at our pictures when we're two, three, four, five, six, um, they're practically identical of one another. It's other than the age of the photograph, um, being looking a little more aged, um, we look the same. 
same blonde hair. I had bright blonde hair at that moment. He had bright blonde hair. Um, and some of you will notice that when we're together, we have similar characteristics. He does certain things that I do, um, and he takes after me in certain ways. So some of you might come to the conclusion, wow, he's obviously your son. He looks like you, and he acts like you. And because he shares the same desires and traits and characteristics of you, there's evidence of some type of lineage here, some type of connection. And um, that's what we see here because of Adam. Adam has now become sinful, no longer seeks the glory of God. We are born that way because we're part of the line of Adam, which makes us the offspring of Satan. And this is Jesus' point in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, he's talking to uh, some Pharisees, and they say, God is our father. They're boasting about who they are, about the fact that they come from the line of Abraham. They don't need Jesus. They don't need a savior. They have God as their father. So this is how Jesus responds to these morally righteous religious people. If God were your father, you would love me. For I come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. So Jesus says, the reason you don't love me is because you're not of the Father. The reason you don't listen to my word is because you're not of the Father. You don't have the same desires as the Father. The Father loves to be glorified through the Son. The Father speaks through the Son. Therefore, if we understand the words of the Son, it means that we're part of the Father, that we know Jesus. But we don't. This is a condition of all of us. We don't love the word of God. In fact, we reject the word of God. We, we want to say that doesn't apply to us. This is not true. And the reason we do that is because we have a different father. Our desire is not for God to be glorified, but it's for us to be glorified. It's for anything really other than God to be glorified. So Jesus calls these morally religious, righteous people, these people who in society we'd look, wow, they look really good and he says, well, actually, they're of the father, the devil, because they don't listen to the word of God and because their desires are the same as Satan's. So you and I and every single person who's ever been born in this world, um, this is how we're born. That's the state of who we are. We don't want to serve God. We don't want to love God. We don't want to listen to his word. In fact, we don't want to please God. We're only concerned about one person, because he's the most important person. And who's that? Me. You can say me there. It's probably not me for you, but it's me for me. Some of you just got confused. Um, so who's the offspring of the woman? Who's the offspring of the woman? The offspring of the woman is ultimately Jesus Christ. He came born of a woman. In fact, he doesn't actually have an earthly father. His father is the father, the heavenly father. And in fact, interesting. In the, the Gospel of John, um, Jesus refers to his mother Mary as what? Remember? The woman. He refers to her in the beginning of the Gospel as the woman, and at the end of the Gospel as the woman. It's as if John is just subtly saying, Jesus is the one born of the woman. He's the one born of the woman. Because it's kind of strange. I mean, what, what son calls his, his mom 
the woman. I mean, he's on the cross and he says, woman. I mean, what? Mom. But it's the woman. So John here, I think he's just helping us realize this, this is the son this is the seed of the woman. This is the one we have been waiting for. And so just as Adam represents all of humanity, all of sinful humanity, so Jesus comes to represent all of redeemed humanity. With Adam representing sinful humanity, Jesus comes as the last Adam, as another representative and all who believe in him are redeemed. So let's go back to Romans 5. We're going to read a little bit more there. Hopefully you didn't close that. Romans 5, verse 15. And we're just going to read from verse 15 to verse 17. Now try, to, try and go back to read this later to be even more clear. But just think, what is it saying about Adam? What is it saying about Jesus and how it's contrasting these two? Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see how all the effects of sin are reversed in Jesus. We have death comes from Adam, life comes from Jesus. Condemnation comes from Adam, justification comes from Jesus. Jesus has come to reverse the facts. There's, there's death and condemnation in Adam. There's life and justification in Jesus. So the question is, is, is who am I in? Right? That's the question. Who's, who, who represents me? Am I of the line of Adam? Because once we believe in Jesus, we actually experience this amazing thing. Remember adoption, the doctrine of adoption? We're adopted into a new family. We get a new family tree. And at the top of our family tree is Jesus, and what permeates our family tree is life, is grace, is justification. It's different from the other family tree we were a part of, where Adam was at the top, and we had death, and judgment, and condemnation. But because of our faith in Jesus, those things have been reversed. So before we look at how Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, I just want to show this battle takes place all throughout Scripture. So here in Genesis 3.15, we're told that the followers of Satan are going to be at war with the seed of the woman. And what we're going to see is that when we believe in Jesus, what happens? We become a part of Jesus, a part of the body of Jesus. So in essence, the seed of the serpent. We're at war with the church. We're at war also with the people of God. Okay, we're going to see that as we make our way through from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let's give just some examples here. Genesis 11, we read about the Tower of Babel, and you can go back, just write these down maybe, you can go back to them. All of humanity is in rebellion against God. God has told Adam, and then after the flood, he told Noah, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Remember the commands of the earth? Fill the earth with my image. God has created the world that he would be worshipped in all of the world. 
So the purpose of man is to go into all the world that God would be glorified. But what do we see in Genesis 11? Man says, no, we're not spreading out through all the world. We're going to gather into one place and we're going to make our name great. So it's like the exact opposite of the purpose of God. We're going to make our name great. And we're going to do so by building a really big tower and we're putting our name on it, line of Adam, and, and we're going to boast in ourselves. So do you see what's happening here with the offspring of the serpent rebelling against the plans of God, rebelling against his redemption plan that will bring about the seed of the woman. And so what does God do? It's really funny if you go to Genesis 11. So get, the terminology is God's built, or man is building a big tower, right? And so God says, let's go down to their tower. Do you get the terminology there? We're building a big tower we should go down to their little tower. You see that the mockery there? And what does God do? He changes the languages so that then they what? Spread out over all the world, which you could then really draw out a lot of conclusions from there on how that is a good thing for also the preservation of the church, the spread of the gospel. But also when you get to the revelation, we see that the gospel doesn't permeate one culture, but it permeates all cultures to show really how amazing and how powerful the gospel is, that it doesn't unite just a people, but it unites all people. So really, Genesis 11 serves to show the power of the gospel in all the earth. Um, go to the book of Exodus, and we read about Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the evil king over all of um, Egypt. And what does he say about God's people? Kill every single male baby that is born. Now think about this. We have the seed of the serpent, and what are they trying to do? Killing the seed of what? The woman, the people of God. We're going to kill every single baby male. What would that prevent? That would prevent what? The seed of the woman that will one day come to crush the head of the serpent. So this battle is going on. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. Story of Esther, we read again, a plot to kill all the Jews. Again, the seed of the serpent are at war with the seed of the woman, the people of God. When we get to the New Testament, again, we have Herod is king. He's an evil king. And what does he do after he hears about the birth of Jesus? He asks, or he declares the death of every single male child two years and under. Seed of the serpent, at war with seed of the woman. We're going to prevent this serpent crusher from coming, from coming. Do you see it? This battle, it goes all throughout the scripture. Go into John chapter 15. Here Jesus is speaking. He says this to the church. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what's he saying? The, ser the seed of the serpent, the world, is at war with me. Because of your faith in me, your union with me, it's also going to hate you. See how that connects? What we have is this battle that's taking place all the way in, the, in Genesis 3, and it goes all the way through Scripture. Revelation chapter 2, we read about the church of Smyrna. 
Now, these churches, the seven churches that are listed, are to represent all of churches. And so the messages that are given to them, the descriptions about them, are to help us understand church today and also what God is calling us to do or the warnings that he's giving us. In Revelation chapter 2, we read that the devil is going to throw some of the believers into jail. Remember that? What do we have? The seed of the serpent is going to be attacking the church, and many of you are going to be persecuted and thrown into jail. So what kind of battle is this? Is this a battle between two opposing forces? If you know, we're, we're going through this book, um, the whole Bible in 16 verses. I'm blanking on the title of the book. Um, and that's kind of what our guide is for this sermon series. And I think in that book, I read several books this week, so I, I think it's from that one, but it mentions the yin and yang is that from there? Does anyone remember that? Yes? Good, good. I was coming up here, I was like, man, no, what book was that from? Um, so the yin and yang are from a Chinese philosophy, and they're two opposing forces that are actually interdependent and interconnected upon one another, like light and dark. And basically, they're morally neutral. Light's not better than dark. Dark's not better than light. Neither one is worse than the other. And so... Is that the way that these opposing forces are revealed in God's word? That you really have the seed of the serpent, and you really have the seed of the woman, and it's just yin and yang. They, they need one another to survive, and they're really morally neutral. Not one's really better than the other. No, it's, that's not what we're given. What we're given is that God is, is holy, he's glorious, he's perfect, he's loving, he's gracious, and we have the serpent who rebels against all of that and is wicked. And we see that these are not equal forces against each other. They're not, they're not two equal armies coming to fight. And, and we can see that through many parts of Scripture. The book of Job begins with Satan coming to God. Do you remember the book of Job? And we, we referenced it last week. Um, and, and Satan comes and, and Satan says, uh, and, and God actually says, have you considered my, my servant Job? Now just think about that. Why does Satan tempt Job or attack him? Because God said, have you considered my servant Job? So just think through that. That brings up questions. Um, so God says, have you considered him? And Satan goes, well, sure, he blesses you. Look at all the things you do for him. You take that stuff away, he'll curse you so fast. And so God says, okay, chapter two, verse six, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So here Job is... God tells Satan, you do whatever you want. You just cannot kill him. So you see, Satan's like a dog on a leash. And he's given a leash, and he can run to the end of the leash. But what happens when he gets to the end of the leash? He can't go any far. Exactly, that's what I was, gets yanked back, jerked back. Um, he cannot, he can jump, he can yelp, he can bark, he can pull, but he will not break that leash. He is constrained by whatever God ordains. And he says, you can go this far, but you shall not go any farther. So it didn't matter what Satan did. He was not going to be able to kill Job because God had told him he cannot. Satan is not powerful like God. Second example, Revelation 19. So this is the end of the book. This is the end of the book. This is kind of when both, we have the seed of the serpent and now the seed of the woman, and they're gathering together. Many call this Armageddon. We're told that the beast and the kings of the earth, so everyone that represents Satan, they're gathered together against Jesus and his army. So is this supposed to be a nail-biter? Are we supposed to be going, oh man, 
Who's going to win? Are we supposed to be like twiddling our thumbs? Are we on the edge of our seat? Not if you've read the book. Verse 21, a sword comes out of Jesus' mouth, which is his word. And what happens? All the enemies are destroyed. They're thrown into the lake of the fiery furnace. They're destroyed. It's not really even a battle. Jesus and Satan are not equal creatures, are equal enemies. Satan is a creature. Jesus is God, creator. Genesis 3, we're told that the worst Satan can do is bruise the heel of Jesus. It's the worst that he can do. But Jesus is going to crush his head. Going to crush his head. And in fact, the bruisings of Jesus' heel all lead up to the crushing of Satan's head. So even when it appears that, that Satan's maybe getting the upper hand in only another page or two or another book as we go through the Bible, what we realize is that, well, actually, God's using those to crush the head of the serpent. So how does Jesus crush the head of the serpent? Jesus enters creation as an infant. Now remember, Satan tries to kill him through the orders of King Herod. But what does that do? That actually fulfills Old Testament scripture, doesn't it? And then um, Jesus and his parents, they, because of this, they went to Egypt and then to Nazareth, which also fulfills Old Testament scripture. So what we see is that all these things Satan are trying to do actually just serves to prove the sovereignty of God. Um, Judas, the disciple of Jesus, is going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, again, fulfilling Old Testament scripture. So God's not going, oh man, I'm caught off guard here. What am I going to do? Nothing that Satan does goes against the plan of God. Satan exercises his power through the Pharisees, and eventually he has Jesus arrested and then crucified, thus fulfilling Old Testament scripture. And we might at this moment go, can Jesus be the serpent crusher if he's crucified? I mean, that's a good question, right? If Jesus is going to be crucified, can he actually be the serpent crusher? Well, he can be if by his death he crushes the serpent. And what we read in Colossians 2.15, Jesus at the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and by dying and then raising from the dead three days later, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. Isn't that good news? So Jesus is the serpent crusher. And death doesn't disarm Jesus, but it's the very means in which he crushes the head of the serpent. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus crushes the head of the serpent at the cross, and we who believe in him are saved, are forgiven, and we are adopted into a new family, and thus we're no longer of the offspring of Satan, but we're of the offspring of the woman, the people of God. Now you might be wondering, okay, if Jesus crushed the head of the serpent at the cross, why do still terrible things happen, right? That's a good question. Isn't that where the defeat took place? Well, yes. Um, so we can answer that really by saying it this way. Jesus crushed the head of Satan, and Jesus is going to crush the head of Satan. 
Both are true. Um, at the cross, Jesus delivered the death blow to Satan. If you remember, um, or if you think of it, um, a man who's on death row is dead. He's a dead man walking, right? He's as good as dead. He's going to die. He's dead and he's going to die. A man who is crucified on a cross, even while he's still alive, is a dead man. No, no one comes off the cross alive. He's dead. He's on the cross, dead, and he's dying. Both are true. Does that make sense? Like, He's not coming off alive. He's as good as dead. And so if we think about it this way, at, at the cross, Satan was put in this hourglass of judgment where he is now dead. In the sense of he's never coming out of this hourglass alive. And the sands of judgment are going to continue to drop down upon him. Or the sands of time. And as the sand increases, which is moving us to the end of Revelation, we're coming to the final point. The consummation of the crushing of Satan. So at the cross, Satan was delivered a death blow. And he might still writhe out in pain. He might still yell. He still might leap. He still might try to get his followers to do what he wants. But he's dying and he's dead. And when Jesus comes again, that judgment will be fully consummated and he'll be thrown into the lake of the fiery furnace where he'll be completely and absolutely judged. Um, so he is dead and he is dying. Um, so that means that during this time that we exist, in the, between the time of the first coming of Jesus and the time of the second coming of Jesus, that's why there's still pain and suffering. Satan's been judged, but God's also in the process of making all things new. That's why he has the church, which goes forth, preaching the kingdom of God, that more and more people would be imaging God, thus glorifying God in all of creation. Um, so how does this passage give us hope? We see that it's a battle that exists all the way from Genesis to the end of Revelation. Um, how does it give us hope? And we could come up with many, and I think after I was going through some of the, I think I gave five things, um, maybe they're slightly redundant, slightly, um, but we'll walk through them. Um, number one, we know that pain and suffering are to be experienced in this life, and they do not give evidence that God is not in control. That's one thing that we, we can take from here. Pain and suffering are going to be experienced, but they never are evidence that God's not in control. In fact, they often prove how God is in control, how God is sovereign. Um, so our lives would take place in a great war. Um, so at this moment, some of us are hoping through um, our next presidential election that perhaps America is going to get better, Right? Maybe we'll become a Christian nation or go back to being a Christian nation or whatever you think about that. Um, are we really to expect from God's word that as we move closer to the second coming of Christ that we're going to have um, greater political freedom in the name of Christ? Do we see that the seed of the serpent is going to lessen its battle against the church? Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to have revivals and other things. Great things to pray for. But my hope is not that necessarily America is going to become a Christian nation. It's that we as the church would take what we see in God's word and be bold there. And stand firm for what we see. Because what we see is that we're in a world where evil takes place. And from all things that I can see, Satan's not going to stop attacking. 
So America might not get easier. Churches are probably going to lose their tax exempt, and things are going to be getting harder. Um, they say in Canada, they're not very far from potentially churches being mandated to, to have to marry uh, homosexuals. Um, that might not be very far off in America. There could be more um, things that are going to be oppressing the church here in America. Certainly we could say that in other parts of the world, it does not appear that the church is moving into times of easy or easier uh, bliss. As the church grows, so does the kingdom of Satan, and they're at war with one another. They fight through pain and persecution. We stand firm in grace and hope and love and faith. And the crazy thing is the church continues to grow in this. Because we're so strong, or because the head of the church is so strong. So pain and suffering is going to take place, and you're going to hear your friends, your church believers, um, why? Why is God doing this? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? We prayed for healing. Why? Why would this happen? Or why, why would the government do this? And walk them back through. We don't always understand the, the, the plans of God, but we see that he's in control, and we see that he does allow evil, and he uses evil greatly for his glory. Um, we know that all, number two, we know all suffering and pain is coming to an end. Um, do you know that? It's coming to an end. I think sometimes we just forget that. We get fixed on CNN or Fox or pick your favorite three-letter word, um, and we watch those, and we just, that's reality for us. Is it? I mean, it, it represents what is happening into the world, but it doesn't represent the whole narrative of what God is doing. All of evil, all of pain, all of suffering is coming to an end. We know that because Jesus died and then rose from the grave. And anyone who wants to deny that is ignorant because there's plenty of evidence, there's more evidence for the uh, the trustworthiness of God's word and for the authenticity of the Bible than there is for any other secular document that is out there. More names have been, more books have been written about Jesus. More, uh, 500 witnesses, they say, in the first century all saw Jesus alive. You don't write that in a book when it can be verified unless if it's true. So we have Jesus who died and rose, thus proving he has conquered sin, death, and Satan, and that one day it is coming to an end. So I want to encourage you. Do you know that? That's to give us hope. So when people are saying, does it get any better? Yes, it does. It really does. Maybe not right now. Maybe not right now. But there's a day coming. And I hope it's in our lifetime. I hope it's soon. And that day is coming. And we can encourage people. Do you encourage people like that? I hear so many Christians, and we talk, and then we, we get with others, and we're like, yeah, it is pretty bad. It is pretty terrible. And it's like we have no hope. Because we have hope because Jesus raised from the dead, and that hope is meant to fuel our joy in Jesus, and that we can come alongside other people who say, look, my husband got laid off. This doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. Everything looks bad. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Surely nothing is good out of this. Yeah, there is. And we can walk them through how oftentimes God just loves to use the wickedness in Scripture for his good. But oftentimes, that's not going to bring people peace because they'll say, well, that's good then. But how do I know God's going to do that for me? 
We're going to walk him through the promises of God. We can walk him through how Jesus promises he's going to come back and what he's going to do with not only us and the redemption of our bodies, but a whole brand new creation. We have hope. I hope you know that we have hope. And that hope is meant to permeate every part of our Christian life. We're not hopeless. We're hopeful. It's confidence. It's not like I hope to win the lottery. That's not going to happen. It's not. I don't even play the lottery. Definitely not going to happen. Um, but if you even play the lottery, what's going to happen? I hope I win. Well, do you? Do you really? Do you have any confidence in that? No. But I have a hope in Jesus that he's returning. I'm very confident in that because I have a whole book about his promises of how they've come true and how they're coming true. Um, number three, we know how the battle ends. Therefore, we can persevere in our faith. Jesus wins. That's pretty cool, right? He wins. Now think about it. If Jesus died and didn't raise from the dead, how would the New Testament have gone? Well, we have a bunch of guys that are in the upper room and they're scared. And they stayed scared. And then eventually they never mentioned the name of Jesus anymore. Why? Because it didn't really, nothing good came out. He died. He wasn't really the Messiah. He wasn't the serpent crusher. But Jesus raises. So what did they do? They persevere in their faith even under death. Polycarp, this amazing disciple of John, flames are being lit around him. He's going to be burned to death. He's like, I'm not going to deny Jesus. He didn't deny me. I'm not going to deny him. Eventually, he's, he's stabbed and he's killed. Hope you know that. We can persevere in our faith because our faith is real and it's based upon the person of Jesus. And he's alive today so that by grace, he continues to strengthen us so we can faithfully follow him. Number four, we know we can boldly share the gospel because it has the power to save. So I'm at the gym this last week, and the gym, it serves a couple purposes for me. It's kind of like my, my thing I just do, and I vent, and, and yeah, I, I just go there. It makes me feel better. Um, but I also go there. It's kind of like this place I love to try to meet other people and to share the gospel with. But I meet strange people at the gym. <laughs> it got weird this week. It just did, and it's... It just got weird. So I was talking to this guy, and we're talking about God and creation, and then all of a sudden we're talking about aliens. And he's totally on it and talking about aliens and eighth dimensions and silver metallic babies being born. And I'm just sitting there going, God, I don't know what to say. And it got weird. Um, and I didn't think it'd get weirder until another guy walks up and says, I totally believe that too. I didn't know what to do at that moment. I didn't. I just didn't. They were representing a worldview I didn't know what to do with. And so I was trying not to, like, say certain words. I wanted to hear them. I wanted to hear where they're coming from, so hopefully I could speak truth. But then one of them says, well, at least we know it doesn't really matter because in the end we're all going to be somewhere. I was like, no, that's not true. That's the only thing I know about this conversation we've had that I can speak into. And I said, that's not true. And I just said, look, if the Bible's true, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, then that will mean that all the other religions and their claims are not going to be true. 
So I said, so if the Bible is true, and that we're only saved through faith in Jesus, then we know that if the Bible is true, when we come to the end of time, when we stand before the Father, if we don't know Jesus, we're going to be judged. But if we know Jesus, we're entered into his heavenly presence forever. So we, we talked about that very briefly before we went back to other topics. Um, but we can boldly share the gospel because of the gospel. And we might not know why everybody else believes what they do. And it's okay that these guys believe that. And I want to try to understand them, that I can speak truth into them. But we can boldly share the gospel because the thing they need more than anything is Jesus. They might think they need something else. And there's a lot of people, the world thinks they need something else. The world thinks they just need more knowledge. The problem is never knowledge. The problem is submission of our will because Romans 1 says we know that there's a creator, but we suppress that knowledge. The problem is not knowledge. So people don't just need more knowledge. What they need is the grace of Jesus, and they need that by us telling them about Jesus. And we can do so so boldly because we know the, the seed of the woman has come and crushed the head of the serpent. That is good news. So we might not know a lot about a lot of things. But one thing we can be bold about is the gospel. And we can share that. Lastly, we know we can risk our lives for the gospel because nothing will separate us from God. Do you know nothing can separate you from God? Yes, because we're Christians. We all know the right answer. It's Jesus and yes, right? Sunday school answers, you guys are so wonderful. Um, just think about your life. Am I living as if that's true? Do you? Or do we play it safe? Eh, I don't really want to go over there. It really wouldn't be wise. It really wouldn't be safe to go over there. What's safe? Who determines what's safe? Who are we trusting in for what's safe? Our own selves to protect ourselves? If that's the case, then let's never go to any people group that doesn't have the gospel because that's not safe. But why can we risk our lives? Why can we risk our relationships with our neighbors? Why can we risk relationships with guys at the gym? Why can we go to other parts of the world? Why can we go downtown? Why can we, we look at our job and say, I'm going to share the gospel here even though they say don't talk about religion? Why? Because the gospel is the thing that we need and that nothing could separate us from God. If I lose my job, that doesn't separate me from God. If I die, that doesn't separate me from God. If I lose the friendship of my neighbor, that doesn't separate me from the love of God. They all just give me, other than death, they all give me just other opportunities to show love and perseverance to other people. Are we playing it safe or do we actually looking at what Jesus has done and saying, that's how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live it in faith in this man and he boldly lived for the glory of God. So I'm going to boldly live for the glory of God. And I'm not going to teach my kids just think what's safe all the time and, and well, you know, don't pray in school because you can't or don't bring your Bible because you can't. All this. Sure, be respectful of authorities. I'm all about that. How are we bold? How are we, how are we standing out? How are we light in a dark world? How are we teaching our kids that it's okay to go to people of different race and share the gospel 
with them? How are we teaching them it's okay that, you know what, I'm going to go to a different part of the world and share the gospel, and if, if that costs me my life, that's okay. And people say, well, you're an irresponsible parent. Am I? By giving my kids a very tangible way of letting them see how we're to boldly live for the gospel? Those are just things we need to think about. Nothing separates us from the love of God. Therefore, let's live that way. So I want to pray. And then we have questions. If you have a, the next slide, if you have any questions, you can text them in to that number and we'll spend a few moments answering questions. Our Father, you sent your son. You sent your son, the serpent crusher. And God, you crushed the head of the serpent, and you're going to crush the head of the serpent. We know that you have defeated sin, death, and Satan. We know that in you there is life. We know that in you there is grace. We know that in you there's justification. There is life. There's grace. There is adoption. God, may those not just be pretty words that we hang up on our, on our walls and we decorate with Pinterest stuff. God, may they be realities of our life. God, help us to trust in your word. And God, may your word strengthen our faith that we would boldly live for you. And that we would be a people that know you and that obey you and worship you. And we do so knowing that nothing can ever separate us from you. And knowing that you are what we need and what every person needs in this world. God, we thank you for the grace of your son Jesus. We thank you that when sin came in this world, you didn't just throw this world in a trash can and start over, but you said, I'm going to redeem it. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you were redeeming God. You were a persevering God. You were a steadfast, loving God. You were a faithful God. And yet, God, you're holy and you're just. And God, help us to know your word. Thank you. For your word in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, question um, How can one believe that all unbelievers are children of Satan while keeping away from any attitude of fear, superiority, or condescension toward them? It's a great question. How do we how do we not go look at us? Why don't you more like us? Um, Romans 3 answers that. And basically it talks about because we're saved by grace, we do not boast in ourselves. We don't save ourselves. We didn't earn the grace and pleasures of God. God bestowed them on us through grace. If we earned them, we could boast. We could boast and we would boast. We didn't. It's by grace so that all boasting is removed. And what do we boast in? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Galatians 6.13 says. But may it never be that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul say I want to boast in a dead man? Because that's where life is. He's the one who saved us and redeemed us. 
Um, in light of America's changing political climate, are we as believers to simply accept those changes or do we push back in faith? Um, we're called to, to submit to authority. Um, so I would say that, but we always, when, when worldly authorities contradict godly authorities, we always align with godly authority, with the word of God. However, um, we still need to be respectful. Um, example, kids aren't supposed to bring their Bibles to school. Um, what do we do with that? We say, well, you're going to carry your Bible when you walk into your classroom and slam it on your desk? And say, this is what I do. So, so I, you know, and I'm more of the line that it, bring it. You know, maybe you put it in your handbag. Maybe you break it out during certain periods. You don't have to necessarily boast about it. You don't have to make a war about it. Um, and say, well, don't pray in school. Okay, well, I'm still going to pray in school because God says pray all the time. That doesn't mean when I walk here. Now, am I going to sit, sit there in the middle of class? Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray for my pagan teacher right now. <laughs> Let's be wise. Let's not just like throw rocks. How are we light? How are we gracious? How are we kind? Um, I just think we need to think through things. Um, if, if the world says, you know, all churches will lose their 5031 status unless if you begin marrying homosexuals, see you later, 5013 status. I mean, that's, just, that's the way we're going to go. Um, we need to submit. We do so in love. Um, if God knew we were going to sin, why did he let us? <laughs> Next question. Um, okay, let's just not beat around the bush. God didn't just know we were going to sin as if he, oh, look, they're sinning. I can't stop them. We use the word permiss. Certain people will use the word permit. Be very careful of that word because that has a very passive tone to it as if God, I guess I'll permit it. I can't really stop it. That's not what happened. Let's not beat around the bush. We have a God who's sovereign over everything. If he didn't want sin, he wouldn't let it. Okay, so obviously he ordained Genesis 3. Okay, it's, it's not beat around the bush. He ordained that sin would come in. And remember, the way scripture points, it always points to the creature for the reason of sin. Never points to God. And again, God's word does not always answer things the way we want. So we need to be careful about pressing God's word to answer our questions the way we want them to be answered. So we gotta be careful there. Um, we need to go back and think about why God created us. Um, so, um, Jesus is the blazing glory of the Father, right? The blazing glory of the Father, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. We read that in Hebrews 1. Um, the Father loves the Son. He loves the Son more than anything else. It's out of his love for the Son that he creates all things, that he would be glorified, but he has a purpose in this, in this creation, and he wants to be glorified in a particular way. He wants to be glorified through his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Christ. Don't necessarily see that in Genesis 1 or 2 or 3. But as we go through the Bible, we'll see that God desires to be glorified through the one whom he loves, the exact imprint of his nature, he wants to be glorified through the Son. You can go to Ephesians 1, 1 through 10, and it's all about how Jesus has chosen us before the foundation of the world, or God has chosen us before the foundation of the world in Jesus. So struggle with that. Before the foundation of the world, we've been chosen in Jesus. Does that not say that there was going to be a cross coming? Romans, or Revelation 13, 8. Let me read this one for you. This is, this is helpful. So Romans, Revelation 13, 8 references a book. And the book is very important. If your name is in the book, it means you're a child of God. If your name is not in the book, it means you're not a child of God. Okay? So this is the book. Let me read 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it, meaning the beast. Everyone whose name, everyone will worship the beast. So everyone will worship the idea of Satan. Just go with that. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book. Now here's the title of the book. In the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So there's a book that exists before creation. The title is the life of the lamb who was slain. Process. There's a book before creation titled The Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. Who is that? Jesus. What's that referring to? The cross. Why did God create that he would be glorified through his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross? There's a lot of questions that can bring up. But why did God allow it? Because he wanted to be glorified through his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. That's what we see. Ephesians 1, Revelation 13, 8. That probably brings up many more questions. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll close in prayer, and uh, we're going to let the worship team come back up, uh, and you can feel free to text us or email me or call me later. No, you can't ask a question. Yeah, go ahead, James. I'm not promising to answer this at this moment. That's okay. Yes, Romans 16, 20. No. Um, <laughs> but what we have there is that tension we live in. Jesus has been, Satan has been crushed, and he will be crushed. Because Paul's saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How's that going to look? Well, ultimately when he comes again. Ultimately when he comes again. Um, but that, that, yeah, no, that was, there's a lot of things that don't make the sermon. A lot of things that don't make the sermon. Um, so uh, but that is a, a wonderful passage there. Uh, it talks about the future crushing of the head of the serpent. Um, we ask questions, or we allow for questions at the end. Hopefully those help. Um, the reason we do it mostly mobile is, if, is that you can then choose. To, I, love, I don't mind it. You raise your hand. I love that, James. Not everyone's as bold as that, so that's why we let it be through the anonymous of phones. What's that? <laughs> Not everyone has that either. So... Um, I'm going to pray and get out of here. Uh, <laughs> Father, we love you. Thank you that your word answers questions, and thank you that your word presents questions 
that are not necessarily answered. God, I love that you are infinite. I love that you are massive. I love that I cannot comprehend you because if I could, I probably wouldn't worship you. But because you are infinite and your ways are far beyond our ways, thank you for your word that is a means of grace for us that we would know you. And thank you that your word provides evidence of who you are, that we would love you more, and that we would know that you are the one true God. And thank you that your word gives us plenty of evidence that even when there's questions, we can still have trust in you, not blind faith, but faith based upon the person of Jesus Christ, your son, the serpent crusher. Father, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen.